welcome. Welcome everybody. <clears throat> Good morning. Thank you for being here. Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 26 this morning. Mark 8.22 is where we'll start. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that everything you do has intention and purpose. I thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you for uh, an act of mercy and healing on this blind man who spent the rest of his life seeing clearly and experiencing the world you created. More importantly, I pray that we would see you clearly, that we would have a greater intimacy and knowledge of you, that we would walk with you and that we would love you You said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. My prayer is that we would hear your word today and walk away with a greater love for you, a greater appreciation for you, a greater desire to serve you completely and to follow you even into suffering. I pray that you would take your word and use it, that you would plant it deep in our hearts today. And that as we hear your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher. I pray that you would use your word today to transform us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's a very curious healing here. Why couldn't Jesus heal this man completely the first time? Right? Why did Jesus half heal this guy? Why did he take this blind person and this man wasn't begging Jesus to heal him? A crowd of people in this other side of the Sea of Galilee saw Jesus coming and a crowd grabbed the first person they saw, maybe this blind beggar, uh, this blind man, and grabbed him and came to Jesus and begged him to heal him. And maybe they wanted to see a show. Maybe they had heard of Jesus, the healer. This is Jesus's third or fourth excursion onto the east side 
of the Sea of Galilee. He is in foreign territory. He is with people who don't understand and don't have a messianic expectation. And Jesus gets the man and he leads him by the hand. The man is blind. He can't see. Jesus leads him by the hand away from the crowds, uh, out of the village. And only with his disciples, Jesus gathers around. Maybe this is what you might imagine if we were to gather for a prayer meeting and a handful of us kind of huddle around and, and Jesus is huddling around this man and Mark is very explicit. Jesus spits on his eyes. It's kind of a weird scene if you can picture somebody spitting on his eyes and touching him. And this man opens his eyes expecting to see. And he doesn't see. He only sees what he can imagine, a man who's never seen a tree, a man who's only felt a tree, and, and a man who doesn't understand what a tree is, he says, I see, I see a few people around here, but they, they look like trees walking around. And Jesus tr- heals him again, it takes a second time. Why couldn't Jesus heal the guy the first time? Why did it take two times? And why was it sort of a half healing Was Jesus unable to fully, completely heal him and restore him? Some of you are asking that question today. I know Jesus can heal me. I know Jesus can deliver me. I know that Jesus is capable of full deliverance. And yet, why am I still experiencing the struggles of my flesh or the struggles of sin or the temptation or some sort of an issue where I can't find full deliverance? That's a very relevant question for you today. Why, why can't Jesus fully, completely deliver me from the sin or from the temptation or from the mindset or from the circumstances or from the trial that I'm going through? Why can't he just fully deliver me? What's the purpose of a half healing? You remember God led Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and The short version is it would have taken just a few weeks to get to the promised land. Why did he lead them on a 40-year excursion through the desert? Why did this guy experience a half healing? Was this some sort of weird optometrist test? Can you see this one better or this way better? Can you see that? Can you see this? this? Why was Jesus healing the man in this way? And why would the Holy Spirit choose to communicate this passage forever in this way, through Mark, with Peter maybe over his shoulder, speaking, write it this way and arrange it that way and arrange everything here. What's the issue here? Why did the Holy Spirit preserve this passage this way for us to understand it? And why the language and why does Mark include the details this way where no other gospel does? Well, that's what I want us to understand this morning. And so we're going to... Let's zoom out a little bit, as any good hermeneutic approach is, that whenever you study Scripture, you don't understand a passage. The first thing you do is don't go to some online pastor or some encyclopedia or commentary or Bible blog site or something. The first thing you do is you just widen your context. And you understand what's coming before and what's coming after. And you, you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. 
And this is the right hermeneutical approach. And so we're going to zoom out a little bit and try to understand what we're supposed to learn from a half healing. In the wider context here, Mark has presented to us five withdrawals in a row. Jesus has gone on five trips outside of his primary area, the area where all the crowds have been. He's gone to Tyre and Sidon in chapter 7. He's gone to the Decapolis. Uh, he's gone to Bethsaida. He's on his way to, um, to Caesarea Philippi, way, way up in the north. He is taking his disciples away from the crowds. And the way Mark is arranged is there are 16 chapters. And in those 16 chapters, the first seven and a half chapters present Jesus as miracle Jesus, as healing Jesus, as great crowd gathering Jesus, as Jesus with enemies, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, um, even Herod's people, they've already killed John the Baptist. Jesus has a great, huge following. Jesus has attracted in, in enormous crowds. Jesus has miraculous ability. But there's a shift, and we talked about it in the form of parables, where Jesus intentionally started to mask himself from the crowds. He started to teach in parables to the masses so that the masses would walk away with a question mark. What does that even mean? I don't even understand what this teaching is. They rejected his clear teaching to repent and believe. And so he didn't give them further teaching. He masked everything in parables so that the crowd purposefully, intentionally walked away without real understanding. But we also hear the author's notes along the way that to his disciples, to his followers, to those who did accept his message to repent and believe he explained everything. Now, five times he's withdrawing with his disciples to different places and he's preparing them for the second half of Mark's presentation of Jesus, which is the crucified, suffering servant. Jesus is going to explain more fully who he is starting in this next section that we'll get to next week. He's withdrawing. This is almost half time. Jesus has maybe nine months to a year of life before the crucifixion left. This is, this is the sprint to the end. This is the final stage. And so five withdrawals, five excursions with his disciples, and three very clear passion predictions are coming. That's the wider context. That's what's happening here. But Jesus, the disciples don't see that. We can see that because we, we've read 16 chapters of Mark. And we've read Matthew and we've read Luke and we've read John. And we know Acts and we know the whole story. But his disciples are just in the moment, right? Have you ever kind of been in the moment? And you don't see everything. You don't see everything really clearly. You just sort of partially see. I recently heard a story about a family who adopted a child from Europe. And she was young and she uh, struggled to assimilate into her American school as an elementary school child. She struggled with the language, naturally. She struggled with her new family environment, naturally. She struggled with America and all of its TV and you know, commercials and promotions and everything that comes along with it. And so her parents were really trying to help her find her place. And she was an athletic child, and so they put her on a swim team. She was a very good swimmer, and they knew she could do well in this and thought it would be a good way uh, for her to sort of find her place. So they started taking her to swim meets as part of this team. 
And all the kids would line up and they would uh, jump in the pool. And this child would just casually swim around and splash the other people. And they would be finishing the race and getting out. And she was last, always last, like painfully last, where, where she was just, she would stop in the middle of the lap and just splash and play and, and wave. And halfway through the season, everybody got to know her as the smiling kid who always finishes last. And at some point, her parents just said to her, I know when we go to this next swim meet, I want you to really try to win this race. Just really, I know you're fast. I've seen you swim fast, and you can do it. And she, um, she said, race? I thought it was a meet. I thought we were supposed to meet people. I, I, I don't understand. So she got in the thing. She heard the pistol go off, and she bolted across and, and instantly became a very fast swimmer. She, she just didn't understand what the purpose was. The swim meet to her meant we're just going to meet people. We're going to hang out in a pool. And it was confusing why everybody <laughs> swam faster and got out. You know, she was just confused. But something happens when you can see clearly. And Jesus wants his disciples to see something very clearly, something they don't see. They don't have the full picture. They like Jesus. Crowds follow Jesus. And they love the miracle kind of Jesus, but they don't fully understand who Jesus is. They don't fully get it, and he wants them to fully understand. I have this conversation a lot, and it typically goes like this. I'll meet people in the community, and when they find out I'm a pastor, which I don't always tell them right away because it creates kind of a weird distance between us and all of a sudden they watch their mouth and then they go back and they ask, act like why did I say anything weird already um, and so it creates a weird tension in our relationship but and it's, I'm not trying to hide it I just don't always hey I'm a pastor you know and so in these conversations once that sort of happens they're going to try to find some common ground and many people many people will say oh I listen to so and so or I listen to this person, or I listen to that person. Or I, and it's usually Joel Osteen, and, and it's not my intent here to bag on Joe, um, Joel, but, but Joel presents intentionally and very clearly uh, a very happy Jesus, right? A very smiley, a very positive, a very American dream kind of Jesus. I want you to be happy, and God wants you to accomplish your five relationship goals, And he wants all your financial sort of portfolios to line up so that you can have this abundant, wonderful life. And he very intentionally leaves out critical parts of who Jesus is. He wouldn't like Mark chapter 8 through 16. (laughs) He wouldn't like the end of Mark chapter 8 here that we're going to get to next week. And it's not my intent to smear some other pastor, so don't get that from it. I just mean... We like the happy Jesus. We like the miracle Jesus. We like Jesus that sort of helps us find a parking spot or gets us out of a jam or whenever he stands up for a woman or for a marginalized person. That's kind of the Jesus that we rally to. But we don't really like the Jesus that says repent of your sins. We don't like the Jesus that's going to have to go to a cross and suffer. And this is the Jesus, this is the full side that Jesus is presenting of himself to us that we have to receive by faith. You can't just pick and choose which Jesus you like. You have to choose 
to believe and follow who Jesus presents himself to be. What does this have to do with this blind man? Well, let's, let's pan out and look back at verse 11. Charles preached last week on Jesus feeding 4,000 people. And he leaves an area. And once he comes back into Israel on the Israel side of the Sea of Galilee, the Pharisees come and argue with him, seeking a sign from heaven. Right? Not just a sign, but they want a sign from heaven. What does a sign from heaven look like? Well, you maybe had a friend or somebody who asked for a sign from heaven. If God is real, why doesn't he just write like Jesus in the clouds or, you know, Bible with like neon lights flashing? Or why doesn't he, why isn't there some enormous sign that just makes it obvious? This is what the Pharisees come and ask. They're demanding it and they're arguing with him, trying to test him, looking for a sign. And Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit and says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and he got into the boat again and he went back to the other side. His time in Israel is going to be shorter in these next few. He's going in and out. He's going back away from the crowds. So on the boat ride, verse 14, the disciples forget to bring bread. Now, this is to us a little funny. I mean, they just fed 4,000 people. Jesus asked for some bread. There's 4,000 people in the plains of Bethsaida on the other side here, this enormous area. They've been with him three days and they're starving. Jesus is worried. He has compassion. Hey, let's not send them away hungry. We need to send them away with something to eat. What do we have? We got some bread here, Jesus. Okay, well, let me just break it. And it's like bread multiplies. I don't understand this. I spent way too much brain power and time in my Christian life trying to figure out how does the bread multiply? Does he hide it behind his cloak? And does it just, is it like a clown car that just keeps stretching bread? I don't understand it. I don't understand the mechanics. I understand chemistry. I understand how things can multiply. I just don't have a reference in my mind for how bread becomes more bread, becomes more bread. Enough bread that 4,000 people can push back from their little platform table area thing on the grass and say, I'm done. I can't eat another bite. And then they all gather all the leftovers and there's basketfuls. Of, I don't get this. All right. I believe it. I trust it. My faith says yes. My head says I don't get it. But the disciples, in some sort of irony, say, oh, my gosh, we forgot to bring bread. Um, and so we don't have any bread. And in verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you don't have any bread? You don't get it. Like. Do you, don't, do you not yet perceive, don't you see, is the Greek word, don't you ophthalmoi? Do you, clear, do you not clearly see or understand? Why are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not ophthalmoi? Don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? And don't you remember, I just broke five loaves for 5,000 and we picked up 12 basketfuls. Verse 20. And then I broke seven pieces of bread for 4,000 people. How many baskets did you take up? They said seven. And he said to them, don't you get it? No comprende? It's not sinking in. I'm the bread of life and it never runs out. You eat from me and it'll never, you will never have lack if you feast on me, the bread of life. Jesus is, this is the picture he's giving them. You don't need this bread. And even if you do need bread, I'm going to give you bread because I can multiply bread. 
He's asking, don't you get it? And so then we get to our focal passage, and he half hears, half heals the man, and then he fully hears him. So look at what happens next. We'll read this, but we'll get to more of it next week. It's really a part two message. After he heals the man completely, and he's asking him the same questions. Do you ophthalmoi to the blind man in verse 23? Spit on his hand, spit on his eyes, put his hands on him. Do you ophthalmoi? Do you see? I partially see. I see people halfway. They're just blurry. I don't really see completely. Then Jesus lays his hands on him again. He opens his eyes and his sight was restored and he sees everything clearly. This is Jesus using this blind man. On a surface level, the man sees and he's healed and he probably becomes a follower of Jesus maybe, but he goes off. Jesus gives him clear instructions, don't enter the village. That's the surface level. A blind man is healed. Amazing. A deeper understanding of this passage that clearly the Holy Spirit wants us to see using the same words and pulling the disciples aside and half healing the guy is what follows. Jesus is now going to reveal a different part of himself because if, if, the, if the Gospels were to end here with Mark chapter 8, we would, we would love Jesus, right? I mean, if there was no Mark 8 and beyond, if Jesus was just the Jesus who heals all your illnesses and provides all your needs and gives you bread and your bank account magically multiplies, right? You're at the end of your bank account and like the, the woman who runs out of oil, she just keeps pouring and more oil keeps... If this was all Jesus declared himself to be, there would be no problem following Jesus. Nobody in the world would have a problem with Jesus. Everybody would love Jesus, right? We would love Jesus and follow this kind of Messiah. The disciples are thinking, there's only an upside here. We can only, the crowds are growing bigger. This is the happiest, best sort of time ever. We have a miracle maker. He's with us forever. They don't see what's coming. So let's read preview next week's sermon. Because they're going to go away on a long trip, way north, to probably one of the darkest places in the area, to a temple of Pan. I was at this temple in Caesarea Philippi, and it was a large cave opening. And there would be regular sacrifices where they would just chuck babies into this cave. Because it was known as the Gates of Hades. It was a place where there were these satanic ritual, idolatrous worship sacrifices. And if you wanted blessings on your family and if you wanted blessings on your business and your crop and your anything that you were doing, and you, you would go to this place and you would offer sacrifices at this sort of mouth to hell is basically what this was, this deep cave. It's a very pagan, very dark place. Jesus is going to take his disciples right up there. And on the way, verse 27, he's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? He wants them to think about who he is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some people say one of the prophets. And verse 29, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, Ha-Mashiach, right? The Messiah, the Savior, the one who's going to save the nation. 
That's partially right. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Verse 30. Don't tell anybody. Verse 31. This is the shift. This is the pivot. This is where their understanding of Jesus, like the little girl splashing in the middle of the pool, they don't fully get it. They're in the water, but they don't see the goal and the purpose. Jesus says in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Do you see what kind of a mind-blowing bit of information this is? Wait a second, Jesus. Does this, do you have to do this? I mean, we're experiencing the height of popularity and crowds and healing. And, and you can't die. You're the Christ. You're supposed to overthrow Rome and make Israel a kingdom. And, and we're supposed to have a prominent place. We've read right the, the entire Old Covenant. We understand that there's a better day coming. That this, the kingdom will be established. We understand all these things. You're the Christ to deliver that right now. What's this suffering death part? And maybe Peter jumps in. I'm, I'm kind of speculating. But, but maybe that's kind of what they're thinking. But verse 29 Peter says, you're the Christ. And so Peter has that understanding. But look what Peter does in just a moment in verse 32. Jesus said it plainly, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. Verse 32, he said this plainly. Peter takes him aside, away from the crowd. I don't want to mess them up, Jesus. But, and Peter says, starts to rebuke him. Right? The nerve of Peter. To take Jesus aside and rebuke him, saying, this isn't going to happen. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus turns in front of everybody and rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, let's just pause here. We're going to get to this next week. The things of man are what they have their eyes set on, not the things of God. Now listen, in application, what do we do with this? Because we like healing Jesus and and mercy Jesus and Jesus who sort of takes up our cause and will hold the protest banner and will march in our parade kind of with us for whatever cause we're most sort of excited about right now. We love that Jesus, right? That's we were in Montreal this week and everything closed down on Friday because of an environmental march. And I'm holding this plastic bottle and all of these people on the subway or having these signs saying like, save the environment and, I, and I'm for that. I really am. And I felt I hid my plastic bottle <laughs> and I kind of wanted to hand it to them because I knew they wouldn't throw it away. What are they going to do with it? I don't know. So I, I felt bad, but it was this weird thing. But that's the Jesus that they loved. If he were to pick up and scribble on a marching thing and hold up a picket sign and walk with them, that's the kind of Jesus that we all can get behind as a culture. But say to that same group the words that Jesus says, that you're a sinner, that you have sinned against a holy God, and this holy God is coming for judgment. The wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That, that you all like sheep have gone astray and that you're separated from God. Isaiah, your, your sins have made a separation between you and God, right? Jeremiah describes this emptiness, this gap between us. And, and so Jesus will come into this sort of culture and say words that they don't want to hear. And they like to march with us, Jesus, but they don't like the preaching Jesus. Jesus warns his disciples, don't let the leaven of the Pharisees or Herod infiltrate. Right. He said that in the very beginning of our passage here. Um, Verse 15, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Pharisees, Herod, opposite sides of the spectrum. Beware of the Pharisees. And what's leaven? It's a a bit of fermented ingredient that would go into the bread. And as you mix it and knead it and all that, it would would spread very rapidly. Like yeast, right? It It would be something small that would taint the whole loaf. And Jesus is saying... To his followers, watch out for the the leaven of the Pharisees. What would we describe that as? Well, in this body of believers here, there may be some of you that your sort of car naturally pulls to the right. And to the right for you is sort of legalism. And you just want to be moral and legalistic. And you want to, the law says this, but you want to go beyond it and say, but I do this. And I go beyond. I'm very, I'm not just moral biblically, but I'm, I'm sort of moral, 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 ultra righteous. And I should sort of be patted on the back for how good I am. And you're not as good as I am. And so I'm going to go to greater lengths to be better. That's the yeast of the Pharisees. They're, they're taking the law and going way above it. Remember the conversation we had about the, sa- the Sabbath? There was like one really clear rule, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Do you remember that sermon? And there were 500 plus rules that they came up with that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. That's the Pharisees, right? That's the yeast of the Pharisees is going beyond what scripture says and becoming hyper legalist, hyper fundamentalist, hyper moral, hyper. The gospel is, is for this sort of legalistic rule breaking. That's the yeast of the Pharisees. What's the yeast of the, the leaven of the have Herod? Herod was just this sort of rebellious, wild living kind of thing. Maybe that's what this means is that within every congregation, there is a bit of you that wants to go way moral. And there's a whole nother group of you that are like, yes, grace, I can live however I want. The sort of antinomianism that there is no law and I should just be able to do what I want and drink what I want and smoke what I want and be with who I want and, and, Amen, because Jesus is always there to kind of forgive me and, and his mercies are new every morning. Kind of, like, yes, I can do whatever I want. Those, that, those two things will poison a congregation. We're to walk in spirit and truth. It's sort of in this balance between grace and the scriptures are boundary and not to add to it, but also to extend grace and mercy and to, to help those who are falling, but, but really beware lest we fall with them. And so there's a very real caution here that Jesus is giving them. But the bigger picture is Jesus is giving them a clear understanding of who he is and who they are and what they are to do in light of his suffering. So you want to follow a Jesus that is for the cause and heals and 
provides and merciful. But, but the Jesus that says here at the end of chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone is going to come follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We know what that means. They didn't know what that meant. They only knew one thing about a cross. It had nothing to do with... There was very little in the Old Covenant in their Hebrew writings that would talk about, prepare them for carry a cross. So they're hearing cross. They're thinking sacrifice. Why would I carry a cross? Why would Jesus make me suffer? Why would I follow Jesus? So funny that Larry read that passage. I've been thinking about that passage for a week in Colossians about... Why wasn't Jesus' sacrifice enough? Why did Paul say, I have to fill up what's lacking in Christ's sacrifice? Because Paul had to suffer in order to present the gospel to the people that he presented it to. And they couldn't be saved just because of Christ's sacrifice alone. There was some suffering on Paul's part in order to deliver the gospel to them so that they could hear and understand the gospel. And God calls you, Christ follower, on a path of humility and suffering. Philippians 2 says you have to, he's going to go down this path of humility and obedience, even obedience unto death to become a servant and a slave of all. Consider others more important than yourselves. This is all that Philippians 2, 5 through 12 passage, and 1 through 4. It describes this sort of path of humility and this sort of path of suffering that Jesus is telling his disciples that they must take up a cross. And follow him. Whoever wants to preserve his own life or her own life will lose it. But whoever will abandon their life and their ambitions and their goals and their hopes and their desires and all these things that they're aiming for, if you'll abandon those things at the foot of Jesus in full submission, if anyone would deny himself in that way and take up his cross and follow me, that person's life will be saved, verse 35. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then in the end forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What's at stake here? Following Jesus fully, what's at stake is your soul, your eternal salvation. You can, you can sort of acquiesce to the world and to the culture and for this time show that you're following Jesus as long as he's sort of good for you. But as long as Jesus is difficult and painful and hard, you're not going to follow anymore. John 6.66 says at that time his disciples said, we're not going to follow you anymore. This is too hard. It's too much. We, we kind of like banner Jesus, but we don't like this death Jesus, the suffering Jesus. And if you're uncomfortable with suffering and following Jesus, the, the cost is your soul. This is what it means. This is the fuller picture. This is the, the greater understanding of who Jesus is. And you can see why a lot of people don't preach this. Happy Jesus draws a crowd, right? Eight pound baby Jesus. That guy draws a crowd. People like that guy. But they don't like this one. We don't like this Jesus. Because he causes, we're the cause of his pain. <laughs> and that's hard. Have you ever done something that caused somebody great pain? My brother was deployed and was training to go to Iraq. And uh, 
his little three or four year old son at the time. We had this big homecoming. He was coming back from basic training and we were in, in my backyard having a barbecue. And I was, I don't know, 30 or 40 people to welcome my brother back. And I'm just chipping a golf ball in a corner of the yard and I chip it, I flop it. I don't, I'm not a good golfer very well, but I, I have this shot that is high and short or whatever. And, and my little nephew runs under it and he tries to catch it. And <laughs> it's kind of funny, but <laughs> he runs under it and he makes this sort of catch and it goes right through his hands and hits his teeth. And there's a perfect golf ball shaped hole in his two front teeth and his bottom two teeth. And it was almost the worst day of my life. My brother's coming home. We're supposed to help him. And I break his son's teeth on the day he gets back from basic training at this big barbecue. And I've never felt worse. To this day, when I see Christian, my nephew, I just open his mouth and say, how's your teeth, man? Are you okay? He's 24 or so. And he's got fine teeth. And they were all cosmetically done. But, but I caused him great pain. And it caused me more pain. I think I've feel more guilt to this day over the, have you ever caused somebody pain real pain have you ever done something on accident and somebody really suffered from it maybe you were in an accident and you were the driver and somebody else was injured or or maybe you by your actions by your s- sort of sinful action somebody else is now experiencing tremendous pain emotionally physically in some other way listen jesus will go through this torture Because of your sin. I want you to personalize that because I want you to understand in the same way that I've personalized it. My sin drove Jesus to the cross. If I was the only sinner in the world, Jesus would have still come and he still would have had to die a torturous death because of my sin. And, And you're not above that. This is why people don't like that Jesus because they think Jesus dies for murderers and for the worst people, but not me. No, Jesus died for you because you're a sinner facing the wrath of God and he took your judgment and punishment for you. That's why people have a hard time with the gospel. That's why they reject it because they refuse to believe that I'm not a good person. Father, would you give us wisdom and understanding so that we see you clearly, so that we don't half see you, so that we don't settle for a half Jesus or a happy Jesus, or some Jesus that just is sort of here to make the American dream come true. Would you help us to see you clearly? And would you help us to follow you fully, even though it will lead us through this path of suffering and shame and difficulty and pain? Because it is for the salvation of our souls. It's for our souls that you suffered. There was no other way. It was only in the cross that we can find redemption. So we worship you for that. We thank you that when there was no other way, you made a way. Help us as Christ followers to follow you fully and completely. I pray that you would forgive us when we're tempted to turn away from you. Because we might disagree with the things that you taught. Help us to have a full, clear picture of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.